Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Harry Clark Azidio, policy correspondent at The New Statesman, and you're listening to The New Statesman podcast. In this episode, we're delving into the world of government contracts and the links between money awarded by the state to companies and interests linked to politicians and peers. From opaque contract awards to cosy relationships between politicians and business elites, the idea of a democracy has long been making headlines and raising eyebrows. But just how endemic is the issue and how does it affect the functioning of the state? Joining me in the studio is Will Dunn, the New Statesman's business editor, who's been exploring the links between peers and politicians and the awarding of government money. Will, great to have you with us today. Thanks, Harry. So you covered this topic for the New Statesman cover story a few weeks ago. But before we get into that, you've uncovered an example of the close relationship between public representatives and government contracts. This concerns the Tory life peer and former minister, John Nash. You found that since 2013, companies Nash has an interest in have invoiced the government for over £3.8 billion worth of goods and services. Can you tell us a bit more about what you found? Yeah, um, so it's three billion eight hundred and thirty-six million eight hundred twelve thousand three hundred forty pounds and two pence. That is the amount of money that the state has paid to um, companies in which Lord Nash has a financial interest. So um, there's no suggestion that um, he's done anything wrong in having a financial interest in those companies. But what it does show is that somebody in a particular um, position of power who also has a lot of diverse business interests, as Lord Nash does, he's a venture capitalist, invests in uh, in a lot of companies. Um, but then that can lead to a situation in which, um, you know, that they leave themselves open to being uh, potentially accused of a, of a conflict of interest. Um, and when the awards of money are so large as they are in this case, I think it's worth asking if that is appropriate. So this is, um, you know, what we've been looking at is a little bit over 180,000 different, almost all um, contracts, but also some awards of um, money as in the form of grants and separately um, some loans that were made to companies in which um, Nash has invested from bodies like uh, the Future Fund, which was set up to keep startup companies going during the pandemic. And um, on the contract side, a lot of those go to, to one company called um, Softcat, which is a software company um, of which uh, 
Lord Nash was formerly a, a director um, until 2013. Uh, and he now still has a, a very big stake in that company in terms of a, a very large shareholding. It's, it's um, almost £90 million pounds today's uh, share prices. If he's receiving uh, the dividends that they're paying, and a stake of that size would have earned him about £2.24 million. Wow. Um, so that's quite a lot of money to be making from um, companies that are making a lot of their money from from the state. So um, when you put all that together in over a few years, um, it's worth asking, is this an appropriate thing for, for parliamentarians to be doing? Would it be sensible to have more transparency so that the public are more aware of, um, you know, the, the financial interests um, of parliamentarians who currently just have to declare a, a list of companies in which they own a stake over a certain value, but they don't have to say exactly how much and they don't have to say things like, you know, where those companies get their money. Obviously, there are, you know, companies will want to protect their privacy, but the public has a right to know about the financial interests of um, the people they've elected. Mm. Um, it's worth saying again that from your reporting that there is no suggestion of any wrongdoing by Nash or any of the companies he's connected to. And as of this recording, he hasn't responded to a request for comment from the New Statesman. But I suppose the wider question is whether the current rules around the financial interests of MPs and those in the Lords and the awarding of state money and contracts are fit for purpose, especially when trust in politics is at such a vulnerable state at the minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um what we have in Britain is we use this phrase chumocracy sometimes, which describes the extent to which the state has been privatised, um, not just by the selling off of water companies and things like that, um, but also the extent to which um, government itself has been outsourced. There has been a very significant trend towards more of the things that government used to do in the past now being done by private companies and a very significant increase in the, in the spending involved on those companies. And I think the public have become increasingly suspicious of those processes. And in some cases, they are right to be. It's also the case that, in general, fraud as a crime has increased, you know, not necessarily by parliamentarians, uh, but, you know, fraud now accounts for 40% of all crime. So this is also taking place within uh, an environment of people increasingly expecting fraud to happen because it is happening more. Mm. And as mentioned, you wrote a cover story for The New Statesman a few weeks ago titled The Rotten State, How Corruption and Democracy Are Pulling Britain Apart. And since 2010, you know, in your piece, the volume of government outsourcing has almost quadrupled from £64 billion a year to more than £220 billion. That's a very big slice of pie up for grabs. I mean, where did the roots of democracy, as you term it, stem from? Is this a relatively recent phenomenon or does this actually date back under Blairism and the 90s even? I remember the cash for questions scandal mm. was a particularly big one. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it, well, when I, I sort of went around um, Parliament for this feature talking to a number of people and, you know, some of the more um, senior um, MPs that I spoke to traced this back to the 1980s, mm. to privatisation, to the change in the expectations of what government would do and what private companies would do in the operations of the state. But then once that had started, um, it then it took different forms. So 
through um, the, the Blair and Brown years, there were, um, you know, sort of uh, there was outsourcing through um, PPE. There was a, a rise in the um, number of consultants used in government. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we do consultancy very well in this country. Uh, it's one of our biggest exports. Mm. Uh, and um, it's, you know, but perhaps into government terms, it could be argued that we are doing a little bit too much of, you know, getting high off our own supply on consultancy <laughs> terms because, uh, and, and that's that's been recognised by the National Audit Office and um, and and in, within government, um, within the Cabinet Office, uh, actually, when when the coalition came in, there was a movement towards reducing spend on consultants, um, which was successful for a while, but. The government still wanted to be able to bring in people from the private sector who knew what they were doing, because the other side of it is that you have real problems with public procurement. And the best people at negotiating contracts and things like that, they always go to work for big companies rather than the government because they'll pay a lot more. Mm. So the way to borrow some of their expertise is, is to bring them into um, government for uh, you know some of their time. And often people are quite generous with their time for the, you know, because they want to help out and, you know, because it's prestigious. Uh, and that's that's all good. But then that opens up all of these sort of, you know, extra areas that you need to scrutinise because you are asking people who are not the government to do the government's work. Mm. I mean, it's sort of not just exclusive to the government as well, though. I think if you look at the opposition, obviously, Keir Starmer has and his Labour Party have sort of had really strong connections, whether that's more implicit or explicit with the Tony Blair Institute, for example. So it's not something that is just limited to government, but it's, I suppose, in the context of the wider picture of just how our politics function. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the Labour Party have been um, very sensibly making uh, lots of overtures to the business community. Um, I was uh, at their business conference um got a nice lunch from what I, <laughs> it was a, what it I was a very me. nice lunch there was some uh it was a lovely chicken thing uh and prawn cocktail <laughs> there, it, it was <laughs> that's the term <laughs> yeah it was well the original prawn cocktail offensive was the the blair brown ah, yes. uh charm offensive to the business community and yeah, this is. I think it's been called the smoked salmon offensive. Smoked salmon, I can't it. remember yeah. if I saw any smoked salmon at the conference, but uh, there was a nice falafel as well. Um, yeah, but that, that, that's very sensible for them to do that because you do need to get businesses on side. Um, you need to form relationships with businesses because they will tell you a lot about what's going on in in the economy um, that you might not get from civil servants. It's extremely sensible for any government to or government in waiting to. Um, have a proper dialogue with the business community. But it's also important to set boundaries and make sure that you concentrate on the transparency of those relationships. Mm. The pandemic obviously was the event which really put the relationship between government ministers and associates of theirs into the spotlight when it came to procuring PPE, for example, for the NHS. Billions of pounds were also lost in support schemes set up to help businesses through the pandemic. Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, has promised to set up a COVID corruption commissioner to try and recoup some of the billions of pounds that were lost. This is something you address in the piece. Can you just sort of outline just how bad the scale of the fraud was, how bad the government were prepared to deal with it, and whether it's actually likely this ploy to recoup some of the money will actually be successful? 
Well, if I start with the middle question first, sure. I think the um, the reason that the COVID procurement went particularly badly was that the government was not prepared for a pandemic and our government was not alone in that. But um, there were lots of very hasty meetings uh, with uh, with companies and that, you know, the government suddenly became uh, an urgent buyer for things uh, in markets where there were everybody, every other government in the world was also an urgent buyer for things. So that created a bit of a bonanza for some companies, I think it's fair to say. And I think that was really, you know, especially with things like, you know, the procurement of um, PPE, I think that created an opportunity for unscrupulous people to sell stuff to the government that um, was not quite up to scratch, as we've seen in a number of cases. And I think the, the scale of that bad procurement and then also at the same time, in order to keep the economy afloat, we were using a fiscal stimulus program that included um, furlough and um, loans to businesses. And those were also, because they were set up so quickly, they, they were also ripe for fraud. I think the most recent estimate is about, altogether, I think the most recent estimate is about 15.7 billion uh, lost to sort of fraud and error around wow. the COVID support programs, which is a lot of money. Um, it's about 20 years of your library's budget. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, the public has seen that uh, and decided that, you know, a lot of these hurried negotiations, things happening through VIP lanes, um, as they've been called, which structurally aren't necessarily a terrible idea. You know, that they're, that is a way in which the government buys things. It has things called framework agreements where companies will be added to this agreement which isn't so much saying we're definitely going to buy this stuff from you. It's you are one of this group of companies who you're a trusted yeah, sort of supplier yeah, we're of these to buy things. things from. Yeah. yeah, and that was in a way the VIP lanes were a very very quick and um, in some cases dirty way of <laughs> doing that. Uh, and I say dirty. I mean by dirty, I mean a lot was just sort of done through text messages. Mm. Um, you know through private email accounts and things like that there were there was a lot of less than transparent communication that didn't need to happen in that way well yeah i suppose like one egregious example is the neighbor of the former health secretary matt hancock was awarded a contract supplying tens of millions of vials for nhs uh covid19 tests uh despite having no his company not having any previous experience of producing medical supplies and he at first approached Matt Hancock with the idea by sending him a personal message on WhatsApp mm -hmm. and that's I suppose a damning indictment of just I suppose the chaos of the procurement process. And I think he later joked via WhatsApp that he would sort of say he'd never heard of Matt Hancock nice. which is yeah doesn't doesn't look good yeah I mean you had people like um, the uh, the companies um, related to Douglas Barrowman and Michelle Moan that were given these very large contracts for PPE yeah I, and I, I think it's it's right that Labour should be proposing to to look into a lot of these um, contracts and and see where it might be possible to recoup some of that money or you know whether or not it was fairly apportioned in terms of doing that I would be surprised if it's possible to get that much back to be honest because the numbers are very large and you know a lot of these companies may have negotiated 
in good faith to the extent that they could uh, at very high pressure times. So um, I would think that the more positive impact of having somebody in that office would be to set some clearer guidelines about what transparency requirements there should be in future. Coming up after the break, how much are bad negotiations costing the government? If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And one of the problems is the quality of negotiations that goes on between civil servants and private companies that provide services. I suppose it's difficult in a way because the sort of makeup and demographics of the civil service, there's a barrier, I suppose, to having negotiated in a context which they might have been able to get best value for money. There's perhaps not as many Dell Boy types in the civil service as there is working for consultancy firms, for example. How does that sort of impact with the bloat of government spend on services? Well, I think, um, in a way, it's, it's probably fair to say that almost all procurement by the private sector as well as the public sector has a certain amount of bloat in it, in that, especially when you're procuring really complex services, um, it's like IT services in particular, it almost always goes over budget and over time. I spoke for the um, for the article, I spoke to um, uh, an ap- academic called um, Bent Flivbjerg, who's at Oxford, who told me about the studies that he's done into the you know psychological and structural reasons why basically... Every single IT contract you look at ends up um, going over time and over budget. Um, it's to do with people within organisations compete because they want their thing to get done. And because they want their, their thing to get done, they project optimistically about the, the results it will have and how cheap it will be to do. And so you, you have and that, that's also true across, you know, across companies and, and the public sector. But then also in the public sector, you also have not just your department, you have the Treasury saying, right, you've got to make a business case for this. So in the case of something like HS2, you have the Treasury saying, right, you need to show that this will deliver a certain amount of economic impact. So that means you then, HS2 then have to come up with a, a business case that says, right, well, the economic impact will be will bring 200,000 people a day from mm. London to Manchester. Mm. And then the engineers look at it and say, Right. Well, that means um, anything like a normal railway is just going to melt because you'll have to be running <laughs> a thousand trains an hour and they're all going to be made out of, you know, titanium. And so you have to sink all these enormous concrete piles into the ground for 100 miles. And I mean, that's slightly over-egging it a little bit. But you have to make something that is gold-plated, basically, mm. in terms of how it's specified, which is loads more expensive uh, in order to justify 
the rather optimistic predictions that were made at the beginning of the process that everyone knew was never weren't really going to happen anyway. But I think the ironic thing is with HS2 in particular, and there's been many headlines about how the cost of that has spiralled so much so that it's marginal as to whether it will actually benefit us in terms of the net spend and what it will then return in economic activity. But it seems as though I suppose it's almost baked into the way in which the government operates in that you have green book logic that sort of dictates how money is spent by central government and then on the other side you have private companies trying to sort of overpromise and in a lot of cases under deliver yeah and you also have um, something that professor fliv Bjerg pointed out to me so you know i asked him whether the uk was particularly different to other countries in this respect and he said the way in which the uk is different is that we do something that is really expensive which is we change our mind um, and that HS2 is a particular example of that. When a government changes its mind about things, that is that's an incredibly expensive thing to do, even more than the, all the other money wasted, um, because then everything has to be reassessed and replanned and a new set of competing init- um, incentives comes in uh, and everything else gets re-gold-plated. And it's, ju- it's just a fantastic way of wasting money. Um, and time. There is maybe not an explicit, but an implicit incentive to sort of overpromise, underdeliver with the sort of expectation that there will be a bloat in a particular project, which could then in turn squeeze more money out of the government. Yeah, I I spoke to somebody who has a long experience of contracts with the public sector being in the room while these contracts are being drawn up, and they told me that in a lot of cases it's it's baked into the the plan that um, first of all they will everybody will be lowballing uh, as in they will be um, telling the the contracting authority that they can do it you know more quickly and more cheaply than the, they know that they really can and when the contract has been awarded um, it's also to a certain extent written um, this person claimed to build up to a uh, what is apparently referred to in project management as uh, an OFM or a, an OF moment. Mm. <laughs> Don't know if we'll have to bleep that. Um, and that's the moment where the engineers come along and say, oh, no, we've found we have to tunnel through granite rather than sandstone. Oh, dear. And that means it's going to cost a lot more money. This person claimed that it is absolutely routine for um, the people uh, offering services to, um, to to write contracts in their way in the full expectation that they will have to, uh, you know, kind of renegotiate at some point um, for more money and that they don't really have any incentive to get things done on time and under budget. Why would they? It's creating more work is, is in their interest. Mm, so, like, the status quo is to overpromise and, like, under-deliver, which kind of sounds like a one of those terrible lines Lord Sugar wills out during The Apprentice. But I suppose, you know, one of the big things we obsess with in our line is cut-through and whether this actually resonates with the public. And obviously, the 
procurement fiasco around the pandemic really did. But a recent poll released by the Anti-Corruption Coalition, politicians were the group that the public thought most likely to be associated with economic crime, Mm -hmm. which isn't a great omen. I mean, how much, I suppose, political resonance does this have, this perception of cronyism, of corruption in our politics? Well, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's worth mentioning second on that, on the list, on that poll were, I think it was oligarchs and kleptocrats. Mm. Kleptocrats, obviously, by definition, are economic criminals. So there's, I mean, to a certain extent, what that poll reveals is that there's a certain section of society that doesn't know what the word kleptocrat means. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but it also, do, it certainly does reveal that people have a really negative perception of um, the way in which uh, politicians are able to separate their financial interests from the spending of the state. And in the UK, I think that is, despite what we've been talking about, the, you know, we do have this kind of chumocracy problem. But I think, it, you know, the UK is also, let's be realistic, a great deal cleaner than, um, than most other countries. I think were you to look at the way in which public spending is awarded in China or India, you know, these are much bigger economies in the case of China, but there, I think there will be much more questions to ask. So we do have a a robust system to a great extent, um, but I think there is a widespread feeling among the public that um, standards have slipped quite quite considerably. I think that's not a great thing for politics. It's also not a great thing for the economy, because one of the things that Britain trades on is our reputation for integrity, being a safe, stable place to do business. And if you have a fraying uh, sense of um, integrity in um, among the public and politics, then um, that's, that's not going to help the confidence of, of investors, whether they're foreign investors or, or domestic. Mm, integrity is the key word here because, you know, Rishi Sunak, upon entering Downing Street after the fiasco of the Johnson administration. He promised integrity, professionalism and accountability. And obviously that the current status quo runs against that. When I suppose looking at what can be done about this, reform is the big question. Lobbying is obviously quite a key factor in how our politics functions. And the Lobbying Act that was introduced in 2014 is celebrating its 10th birthday this year. And there seems to be an appetite for reform. Is there any consensus about what that may look like or what that could constitute? Because clearly there is inefficiencies in the way the current system functions. Just to ask, do you have a 10th birthday planned for the Lobbying Act? I mean, I know on the, the Spotlight team, you are <laughs> serious policy nerds. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, that would be telling. Um, it's not hit yet, as far okay. as I'm aware. It's on the list of uh, yeah. of uh, the legislative many, many birthdays yeah, we're really um, cool. to celebrate. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, when, when you look at cases like David Cameron's lobbying on behalf of Greensill, a uh, financial company which has since you know gone into administration and um, is now being investigated by the serious fraud office and um, is subject to a criminal investigation um, abroad uh, you know he was using his his personal contacts uh, in in government on behalf of um, of Greensill and uh, you know he was he was cleared by the regulator he wasn't a politician at the time you know he's 
has returned as as foreign secretary. He was, you know, been away from government for long enough that um, he, um, you know, it wasn't a question for the um, the Aqaba, uh reg- regulator, but he wasn't sort of publicly declared as a lobbyist, mm. so it wasn't happening in the most transparent way. Um, but he was cleared by the lobbying regulator, as I believe was um, Owen Paterson, um, who was then suspended from Parliament following questions being asked about um, his work for the PP supplier, uh, Randox. Mm. And just finally, it's hard to put a monetary value on the cost of democracy, uh, but I suppose the implications of a politics and a government that functions based on cronyism and corruption, that can have massive existential questions and a crisis for British politics to answer. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, one of the people I spoke to for the piece was Dominic Grieve, who um, since leaving uh, Westminster has been um, working as the chair of this new commission on governance uh, and, you know, there's standards in in public life uh, and um, uh, they've produced a report that has some... all sorts of recommendations about ways in which um, processes that could be tightened up. You'd love it on the spotlight team. It's really wonky, but it's you know it's <laughs> things like you know give it putting uh, you know the, the House of Lords appointments on a on a statutory footing, taking those that sort of privilege away from the Prime Minister to to be able to appoint peers as they see fit and things like that that would just help. Firstly, probably with the process of, of government, but also help with the really serious problem of public perception and that's the thing that you know ultimately that that Dominic Grieve said was the really big problem um, aside from whatever the financial cost is in terms of you know what investors might think or how government works it's the faith that people have in parliamentary democracy that matters. Mm. A depressingly dour state of affairs but (laughs) very well explained thank you Will. My pleasure thank you Harry. Thanks so much for listening. You can read all of the pieces mentioned in this episode via the links in the show notes. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Harry clark and my colleague, Will Dunn. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.